An Ethiopian Airlines flight is on its way across Africa when something unexpected happens. What caused this plane to need to try to make an emergency ditching off the coast of Africa? Oh, and happy three-year anniversary, everyone! Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have Paige. Hello. Paige, Hello. Paige is back. our lovely editor. Yes. An all-around wonderful assistant person. Doing, what is your title? Doing. I still don't know. It's too intimidating for me. I would say you have one job, and that is to pick your title, but you have way more jobs than that. <laughs> that would be inaccurate. You do most of the outside jobs now. Hard Landings assistant. Yeah, no, that's what. See, that's what I was going for, and then Christy was like, "That's not enough. It needs to be fancier." And I was like, I mean, "Excuse me, ma'am, I don't know." Assistant can mean a lot of things. Exactly. You're on my page. Executive assistant. Yes, thank you. That's more of what I was looking for. Perfect. Executive, that's fine. Executive admin assistant. Ooh. Ooh. Fancy titles now. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. We're already off to a great start. Things are going good. <laughs> great. It's a good day. <laughs> so housekeeping stuff. No new patrons, as far as I'm aware. I can verify. And then we did have someone answer the trivia questions for the newsletter, Ooh. which Ooh. I had complained about. I don't know. If was, <laughs> I don't know if it was a post episode or at the end of a previous episode. Yeah. But the day I complained about it, someone had answered the question. Nice. <laughs> and it's one of our patrons. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank and you. You got all of them Kevin. correct. So thank you. Awesome. What, what are the trivia questions? Well, the first. I don't know all of them. One of them's like, who made our logo? Mm-hmm. Ah. Another one's like, who performs the intro, yes. the music? And one of them's like, what's the plane in the intro music? See, this just shows, yeah, and we hit that. I hit that one in there really good because that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was, I, that was... I said what it was a really long time ago. And he found remembered. That, that's amazing. <laughs> he, he got it. That's good. I don't remember what the other one is. There was four questions. I'd have to look at the newsletter. Too, or or sure. you, our listeners, can look at the newsletter. Yes. So he did get all four right. So now I'll have to make new ones for the next newsletter. And that's okay. It's fun that we like hide those things. But also it shows us if like if you're listening to the beginning and the end. Because I know that a lot of people just skip that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which, acceptable. Yes. I understand. It is. Okay. That being said, listener episodes. Um, stop oh my sending God. stories. <laughs> I was like just 30. saying yesterday. I was just saying yesterday. I was like, we have like eight. Listener story episodes worth of stories now. We have so many stories. Stop sending stories. <laughs> For just a hot minute, start up again in like December. Like, we're going to have to split the stories between three episodes now. Easily. Because we have like 30 stories to do. With all that free time we Yeah, have. I was going to say, we also haven't had any free time. We even have uh, Miranda said we haven't had a chance to record yet. We'll get, we'll get to It'll all happen. that fun stuff in the post episode and why we didn't record that this past week. But It's um, all good. Yeah, like, I'm like, stop. They stop. just keep coming in. <laughs> it's like the same three people. I'm like, stop sending stories. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry we said we needed them. I'm so sorry. Flooded. We Wait are now that. flooded. Yes. So, please stop sending stories for now. We'll let you know when they we can came, continue. They just came in like Bullets everywhere. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, oh. So, 
That being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Ethiopian Flight 9. Thanks to multiple patrons. Thanks to primarily Miranda. Yeah, I wanted to do this one. Yeah. We'll get to why that... There's a specific reason why I wanted to do it. And And then we complained about it because no one had recommended it. So Miranda's like, I recommend it. And then a bunch of our patrons were like, I also also recommend this. (laughs) It was like 10 patrons. We're like, all right. This is a big one. And it's mostly, we'll talk about later why this is a really well-known big one, because there's a very distinctive reason why, but it is a big one. And also, this is going to be a very different episode, as you can tell, Paige is here, so that means that Miranda definitely knows what's going on. We pretty much gave that away. She's in on it. She's in on it. I am in on it. Also, this is a very different kind of thing we're talking about. And if you know this one, which a lot of you probably do, you know exactly what's coming next. I hide nothing. This will not be any kind of mysterious. There's not really analysis in this anyway whatsoever because it doesn't need one. Nope, and we'll get to that later, as we said. So, this happened on November 23rd of 1996. This was a Boeing 767-200ER, or extended range. This is the shortest version of the 767 out of the three. The 200, the 300, and the 400. The 200 was the original version. It was very short. You can distinctively tell the difference between all three of them a few different ways. Actually, I think the 767 has some of the easiest ways to tell, because the 200 only has one overwing exit, although there is a variation of the 300 that doesn't. That has the same, but that's rare. And most of them are gone. The 300. Back to the Nick is a nerd podcast. Yes. The 300 has four overwing exits. And the 400 generally has exits in front of and behind the wings and no overwing exits. So that's the primary difference in 767s. I would also like to point out that while we are plane spotting, Nick can tell these things. Oh, yes. And Miranda and I look at each other like, what? How? She goes, and he's like, there are exit doors over the way. I'm like, how the you see to, that from down here to real av geeks it's like the best way i can explain it is it's like looking at a face you recognize people from their face you know who they are immediately when you see their face right no, you I recognize think, i think you're full of it it's the same thing no it literally uses the same part of the brain like i can't explain it like i can look at any particular airplane and know exactly what it is just because I recognize the few the same planes, way that I recognize a face. The few planes that I can recognize immediately, it's because of certain features that I can explicitly enumerate. See, and I could tell you the features, but I don't have to. Like, I don't, that doesn't even like, I'm not even like looking for particular features. I just recognize it. I if I see a 747, I, I immediately know it's a 747. Sure, of course. <laughs> it has a very distinctive hump and it has yes. four engines. Yes. Done. Fair enough. But like, Small details on airplanes that can tell what it is just because... How can you tell what kind of baby bus it is? Like, these are the kinds of things like... Whenever we see a Southwest flight, we're like, it's a 737. I can usually tell when it's a 700. Short. Yeah. A difference between an 8 and 900? Screw it. Sometimes I guess... I guess. <laughs> Nick or Brendan's like, that's right! I'm like, it looks like I know things. You know it's really hard now? <laughs> but I don't. I know we're tangenting a little bit. I know... You know what's really hard now is Southwest is going to have... They already have the Max 8 along with the 800. They also have the 700, and now they're going to have the Max 7 soon. The Max 7 and the 700 are essentially identical. The 800 and the Max 8 are essentially identical. They are the same configuration inside and out. There's some very few distinctive features that can differentiate a Max from an 800 or a Max from a 9. Pick me! Pick me! Pick me! Yes. <laughs> it's the I know wing. what your thing is. It's the winglets. 
And the engines are pointy. They're pointy. Jag- they're jagged on yes. the back. There's one really distinctive feature, actually, if you're looking at it from the rear. It, it has, its butt is sharp. Yeah, it has a, <laughs> has a pointy. It has a pointy butt. Its APU is pointy. The naughty bits are pointy. <laughs> All of this to say, Nick's a really big nerd. Yep. And we're gonna move on. We're moving on. Tail number for this is Echo Tango Alpha India Zulu. This is a flight from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to Nairobi in Kenya to. Brazzaville in Republic of Congo, to Lagos in Nigeria, to Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. Africa! Yeah, wow. it basically just crosses from east to west along the wide part of Africa. Of Africa, yeah. It is also worth noting that most of the Ethiopian Airlines pilots call this particular plane Zulu. Yes, they call it Zulu. Because the last digit of its tail number is Zulu. Z. No, yep. fair. So this is a well-known airplane within the company... They've had it for quite some time. The 767-200s were not new in 1996. They're from the 80s. So there you have it. So this is obviously a lot of stops, but not one of these flights is very long. We're talking, you know, one to two hours at most. You know, that's generally the range of each one of these flights. So it's a pretty short flights all the way across the width of the wide part of Africa. Not quite all the way across, but pretty far. It's like if you were to take a series of stops from California to New York. Pretty much. Right? Yep. If you stop from California to here, it's a couple hours. Yep. They described it. It takes them 12 hours to do the whole thing, essentially, right. at the time. But we're talking about one, two, three, four, five cities. Yeah. So about an average of like an hour and a half. So maybe even a little bit less than that. Yeah. Per this, flight. Yeah. You can tell the flights are normally pretty short. That will matter. A lot. Yep. In a second. The captain for the flight is Lul Abate. I don't know if it's Abate or... I, I don't. I, I'm really bad with these names. He was 42 years old at the time. He had 11,500 hours total, of which 4,967 hours were on the 767. Yeah, pretty well experienced. He was the, an experienced pilot. Pilot <laughs> and experienced on the aircraft. Yep. The first officer was Jonas Mikuria. He was 34 years old at the time. He had 6,500 hours total, of which 3,042 were on the type. So both of them are very well experienced on the 767. That is a very respectable number for both of them. Also, respectable numbers overall. They're an experienced crew. In Addis Ababa, 163 passengers and 12 crew boarded the airplane. The flight took off just after 11 a.m. The climb out and the climb to cruise was normal, leveling off at 39,000 feet. Quite a ways up there. At 11.29 a.m. local time, about 20 minutes after takeoff, a person jumped up from his seat and ran up the aisle toward the front of the plane, followed by two other men who did the same. The first man shoved a cabin crew member out of the way and stormed past, shouting to the cabin, Everybody should be seated. I have a bomb. Mm. I hide nothing. <laughs> okay. Do you get to what it actually is? No. Okay. I'm leaving that for you. Good. This right. is ringing like the tiniest of bells, but I'm pretty sure I don't know what happened. When you see the video, you might recognize it only because it's very iconic. We'll get to it later, but there is a video of this, and that's why this is so well known. Okay. They slammed open the cockpit door and immediately declared that there were 11 men with them. As part of this hostage situation for the airplane, this hijacking now. They then struck the first officer with force across the head, injuring him and telling him to leave the cockpit, which he did so, bruised and bleeding. Sitting in the passenger cabin, he was eventually kicked out of the first class cabin by the hijackers. So it is good to preface here that before 9-11, yes. the way that people handled hijackings was you did what the hijackers wanted. Right. Because in theory... What they wanted was to go to a certain place and land the plane and everything would be fine. So keep in mind, during this entire bit, 
that when we talk about the hijackers and the crew being complicit with them, that was the way you were supposed to handle it until after 9-11. And we'll particularly talk about that a little bit later on because of the captain. We'll talk about it. (laughs) But yeah, this is... I just want people to realize that like... When you say that the first officer complied, that's why. Don't get upset like, oh, why did he do that? Like, what the heck? Like, you have to remember that at this point in time, 9-11 haven't happened yet. So keep in mind that this is how all airlines operated with hijackers. This is how most businesses will operate. Mm -hmm. Like, your life is not worth fighting these people. Yeah, it's a little different. Well, and a plane. Nine, die, but. 99% of the time, especially in this part of the world, they weren't looking to actually kill anybody at any point in time, nor would they actually ever carry it out. They generally were just looking for a solution to their problem, and, and this was the unfortunate means to it, but nobody would actually end up really severely hurt in the situation. Usually it would end okay. One way or another. I just wanted to make a preface about that because I feel like some people, especially if you are listening and you were really young, like we were during the 9-11 attacks and stuff where mm-hmm. you don't quite remember before then. And if you're younger than that and 9-11 is in your history book. Don't even talk to me, okay? What I have to say about that, what I have to say about that, though, is this probably seems just absolutely ridiculous. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah, ridiculous. And like, why would you do that? Like, it doesn't make sense. It seems out of this world, almost unimaginable in the world we live in today. But But the reality is, at the time, this actually wasn't entirely abnormal. At the time, you negotiated with terrorists. Pretty much. That's the unfortunate thing. Continuing. Sorry, I just wanted to make that a little blurb. That's okay. The men grabbed a crash axe and a fire extinguisher from the sides of the cockpit and proceeded to use them to threaten the captain, demanding that they change their destination to Australia. Um... (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think you've already found the problem, haven't point, you? Um, that's, that's kind of far away. At this point, <laughs> you would not day. be wrong. <laughs> You'll remember that they are not going to Australia. You may have noticed. They're going across Africa. You may have noticed that their destination was not originally Australia. And that Australia is, you know, much further away than within Africa. To anyone with even a small amount of aviation knowledge, it is immediately evident that they do not have enough fuel on board to make it to Australia. You would think. This just doesn't... We'll get we'll get more into that later. <laughs> this is part of the stupid I was talking about when I wanted to do this episode. This, not to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but this one really deserved a Darwin Award, but there's one big reason it didn't get one. We'll talk about that later on. This is so stupid. Yes. It's so stupid. Wa- I'm sitting there watching the Mayday episode. I'm like, they're so stupid. This isn't to, like, make fun of in any way the terrible things that came from this accident, but... And we'll get to that. But the hijackers are dumb as a box of rocks. Okay, listen, <laughs> Linda, if you've ever understood aviation before, you realize, and I'll get into this later... Oh, it gets so much worse. ...that you don't fill the plane full every time you go somewhere, Okay. Linda, because then you'd be overweight. Exactly. We're going to get to just how dumb they were here in just a second. Which, sorry, I'm so sorry. I keep interrupting. But those of you who ask who Linda is, I'm Linda. (laughs) Okay, so I asked that question. (laughs) There there was a couple people who were like, whoever the hell Linda is. Linda is a generic. I was thinking of the video. It's generic, but it tends to be you. I'm Linda. I was thinking of the video of like the little kid. Yes, that's that's what it's from. That's what it's from. That's absolutely what it's from. Did you guys watch that a lot recently? Yes. No. No. That's what it's from. There's also this 
backstory joke we will tell in full in the post episode yeah but miranda was accidentally called linda and it just kind of stuck yeah there's not enough syllables there no but it ends in duh listen Listen, linda (laughs) we'll get into it later All right, let's get into how ridiculous this gets just very quickly. The captain immediately explained this lack of fuel to them, and there was only three hours of fuel on the airplane remaining, and that they could not make it to Australia. One of the hijackers then left the cockpit and returned with one of the in-flight magazines from the airplane, from Ethiopian Airlines, and showed to the captain that it stated that their 767 could fly for 11 whole hours, and that they only needed 10 to get to Australia. The captain then had to explain to them once more... That that is very different. You don't fill the plane up every time! (laughs) From the fuel that was actually on the airplane. That that was the actual, that was the endurance of the airplane. That was not what was actually present on the airplane. Legit was like, but it can fly for this long. But I'm telling you, we don't have enough fuel. Here is at the time just how, sorry, not to interrupt. Here is how at the time, just how much they would negotiate with terrorists. He then suggested to them to make a refueling stop in Mombasa okay, and then so- continue to Australia because he was like, I don't care, <laughs> but we're not going to make it on what we have. <laughs> a, this is tingling something very familiar and B, just how dumb. How dumb. <laughs> At how one dumb. point, the captain was like, see this number? This is how many pounds of fuel we have on board. If we had enough fuel to get to Australia, it would read this. I think he said like 60,000. 6,300 or 60. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. 60, Some ridiculous number of fuel. And that's not what they had. And the hijackers were like, you could just be saying that so that we would stop somewhere. Yep. You're just, you're just lying to us. You're bluffing. Uh... Yep. The hijackers refused to believe the captain and refused the fuel stops. Yep. Two of the hijackers <gasps> went back to the passenger cabin and ordered everyone to look down and stay silent. They then demanded that one of the cabin crew, who had all been seated themselves in the business class or first class cabin, come to the front and set up the forward attendant panel so that he could make an announcement. The announcement was made stating that there were changes to their destination and that they had a bomb, one bomb, on board and would not hesitate to use it should anyone try to fight back. This message was relayed in English, French, and... For those of you who don't realize why they'd said it in French, part of this part of Africa for a while, was inhabited by French. What Am- the heck? Amharic. What the heck? Amharic? Amharic. Amharic. It is an Ethiopian Semitic language. Yeah. There you go. So, Very, there you go. yes, local. It is a subgrouping within the Semitic branch of the Afro-Asiatic languages. There you go. This language serves as the official working language of the Ethiopian federal government and is also the official or working language of several of Ethiopia's federal regions. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. The captain still had radio contact with Addis Ababa, which he informed them that the airplane had been hijacked and ordered to fly to Australia, but could only make it as far as Mombasa. Addis Ababa Control Center called Nairobi Area Control Center and warned that the flight was hijacked and diverting to Mombasa. Sometime later, the hijackers ordered the captain call Australia. (laughs) That was Um, their request. I'm gonna just go. Pick up the phone and just call Australia. Okay. Uh-huh. Which the captain told them there was no phone on board and with which to call Australia. And nor was he, nor was he really entirely sure who he would call. Right? Pardon, hold on. The entire continent of Australia? <laughs> yeah. Or like, who in Australia? 
do I need to call? Do you know where we're going? Like, it seems to me that they're like, just fly to Australia. You realize Australia is made up of different, like, like states, states right? Like, you need And to it's call. far away. Yeah. Like, you, you can't just call Australia. Yeah. Come in, Australia. <laughs> All of Australia. Anyone who will respond. Excuse me, Australia, I have a request. <laughs> The hijackers then threatened to hurt him, so he asked for a phone number. So they searched through that in-flight magazine, through Ethiopian's timetable, until they found a phone number for the general sales in Australia for <laughs> Ethiopian Airlines. And they were like, call this number. Call, call a sales they number. They didn't even have a plan. They had One of them claims to have had a friend there. And that, that is, is all they know. complete Yeah, sorry. I, you don't know where the f*** you're going, and you just want to get... We'll get into this later, but they just want to see if they can make it to Australia. I don't know. The captain then contacted the Nairobi Area Control Center and transmitted a message to be relayed to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I just I'm expecting like... to be angry at this episode, <laughs> not to laugh so much. It's the entirety of the continent of Traffic control. Um, we have a plane. Well, I, I this is not a, a bit of I history. wrote this. I felt like I wrote this really well, but I didn't intend for it to be quite this funny. <laughs> it's it's. I don't think you are reading it funny. It's I think just it's the, the atmosphere. It, it's that and just it the is circumstances insane. are so insane. It's like, well, I can't help but laugh at the idea of just call Australia. Every little thing just seems to get a little bit worse. Like they just are ridiculously dumb. I, I just can't even fathom. Like, As the new thing that it is now on the podcast is, mm -hmm. it gets worse. It gets worse. Yes. And it does. Because here's the whole thing about that. The captain knew full well that whatever this message was, which to be honest, I don't have and I don't know what he said. I don't remember. I don't, it doesn't matter. He relayed this to the Nairobi Area Control Center to be relayed to Australia, and that was the whole instructions. And of course, the captain and the air traffic control both know that's not going to happen. <laughs> no. Australia, whoever that would be in Australia, is not going to be notified. They're not going to relay any kind of message. That does not matter. It doesn't exist. No. Also during that time, he informed the air traffic controller of the position of the aircraft and its fuel endurance, warning him that there was not much fuel left on board. The air traffic controller asked if they intended to land at Mombasa, and the captain informed the air traffic controller that the hijackers refused. Still. The controllers understood that there was not enough fuel to make it to Australia. By a lot. The captain put the air traffic controller on the speaker in the cockpit to allow them to try to convince the hijackers to land for a fuel stop and then continue to Australia should they so wish. Like, we will get you there. Or be forced to ditch in the ocean. That's the thing, is that they didn't realize is... We'll let you get to Australia. We will take you. They are literally like, we, will we help you. do not care. We don't care where you fly to. But you're not going to get there now. Yeah. <laughs> like with the amount of stuff we have, with the resources we have on board, you are not getting to Australia. They were like, look, you are already out of Ethiopia. You may land. You may take on fuel. We will not argue. You can continue to Australia too. But either way, you're not in Ethiopia anymore. They continued to refuse to land. The hijackers then forced the captain to shut off the radio as they were not willing to negotiate anymore. Oh, don't do that. The leader of the hijackers, seated in the right seat, 
took the captain's headset and sunglasses from him and instructed him not to make any further communications. The captain made several announcements to the cabin, keeping them aware of what was happening with the hijackers, because clearly everybody saw what was happening Well, and this all started. As the person from Come From Far Away said when we watched it, mm -hmm. we are all freaking the f*** out. Yes. <laughs> yep. They are. I mean, imagine being a passenger on that plane, realizing that there's hijackers in the cockpit. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what the end game is. And, and that's the whole thing about it, because the reality is, yes, the passengers are very anxious. And it's because this is not an uncommon thing, though. A lot of them are also very aware of how most of these outcomes are not such a big deal. Really, they just want to know. When are we going to get off this thing? Yeah. That's what most of them are worried about. They want to know, when are we going to land? When can I get off of this airplane? Like, are we going to negotiate? Are we going to end up in another city? What city are we going to end up in? I just want to know how long I'm going to be in this ordeal. That's the majority of what happens in these circumstances. So a lot of them are anxious about that. It hasn't really probably even crossed their mind that they might end up in the ocean. But in the Mayday episode, which is quite old... Because it's from season three. Yep. It's one of the old style ones where it's mostly story. Yep. No analysis because we'll get there, but there isn't one. Obviously, there's a reason. I why. mean, there is. Barely. And it's kind of unnecessary. That. <laughs> but the whole thing is there is somebody on the plane who was aware, a passenger, who was aware that they only had an intended destination of only so far. Plus, they only were supposed to have 45 minutes excess to that in fuel, so he calculated it out in his own brain that about three hours is all they had. And they were told that they were heading for Australia. He already kind of knew himself. He was like, we are not landing in Australia. To Australia. We and are f And yeah. around how long into the flight did this all start again? 20 really minutes. Quickly? Okay, so 20 really minutes. quickly. Yep. So they got some time to right. figure their out. The captain, though was relatively sharp still. I Being mean, a smart cookie. He was quite the smart cookie. Instead of flying straight east toward Australia, the captain tried to trick the hijackers by flying south along the coast in order to have a place to land or ditch near land. Basically, he assumed the hijackers were dumb. Yep. He was like, Which, if I just get it to the water... To be fair. They are. <laughs> he was like, if I can just get it to the water and kind of hide the fact that we're still really close to land and that I am flying in the totally wrong direction... But we might end up near land, should we have to ditch, or I can land somewhere when we have to, then we might be in a better situation. Okay. Exactly. Except they're not that dumb. I mean... They're still pretty dumb. The hijackers then asked the captain to contact Australia again. Stop it! <laughs> Just stop Why that! Stop from Australia! <laughs> we already contacted Australia. What are they gonna do? They're not gonna do anything. Can what? you at least what tell me... Happening? Like, do you want me to call, like, the head of government there? Like, I, give me at least a contact name. I just love the fact that they're like, just relay this message to Australia, and he's like, just so you won't kill me. Sure. Says something over the radio about relaying it to Australia, and that is, like, satisfying to them. That's why, <laughs> that's why, assuming that they're dumb makes sense. They just keep making really stupid moves. Yeah. Because they are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> they asked to contact Australia again, at which time the captain contacted the company radio at Dar es Salaam and informed them of the position, the heading, and the fuel quantity remaining again. So he relayed whatever message they had and then was immediately like, but also we're here. This is how much fuel we have and this is where we're going. Because <laughs> he was sharp By enough. <laughs> he was sharp enough to do that really quick. Good. However, 
One of the hijackers, the leader, was just marginally smart enough to pick up on the fact that they weren't heading where they were supposed to. He threatened to blow up the plane if he did not turn east toward the ocean and remain at or above flight level 390 or 39,000 feet where they were at because he could read the altimeter because he was sitting in the right seat. And he also read the heading and noticed that that was not east. East. And he understood which way would be east. Yes. Probably because on most compasses still there is like east, south, west, north marked. Damn it. And they were flying south. Damn it. <laughs> they were too smart for that. Yes. The captain had no choice and turned the airplane east over the Indian Ocean. He could not get the charts for the area. He didn't have charts at his disposal because they were on the first officer's side. Oh, the pocket. well. Where the hijacker was sitting. So he picked up a pocket atlas that he had with him. Okay. Brilliant. And noted that the Comoros Islands. Which he had never heard of before. Yes, most people haven't. Between the African continent and Madagascar, literally like right in the middle between the two little tiny islands, were not that far from their position. So he headed that direction, hoping that he could land at an airport there or ditch near one of the islands. One of the hijackers had taken a bottle of whiskey from the carts at the front, actually several of them had, and they were passing it amongst one another, drinking. The leader of the hijackers was messing with the controls. No! And luckily the autopilot was still engaged, so nothing happened. Well, and it's lucky that they didn't disengage the autopilot. We'll get there. sometimes, sometimes oh, no. certain movements of... The joystick or the... Yes, the yoke. The yoke, depending on... They're on a 67, so the yoke... Yes. ...can cause the autopilot to disengage. Yep. They even tried to get the captain to drink a little bit, but he refused since he was flying, and they were just okay with that. <laughs> well, that's good. I don't know how they'd probably have to force his mouth open to To be fair, it. he was probably like, look, if you want me to fly all the way to Australia, I need to be coherent. Yeah. It's like... Getting into someone's car and asking them to get really drunk while you... And then drive me to, like, New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, that's just a really bad idea. Like, you're going to drink and drive, and I'm just going to be your passenger. Bad call, bro. <laughs> right. As they neared the Comoros Island, and the captain had Moroni International Airport runway in sight, he began making slow circles, staying about 15 to 20 nautical miles from that island and that airport. Because being a smart cookie. Was Does the smart. hijacker notice? I have to imagine at some point maybe they did. I mean, like, if he noticed that they weren't heading the right direction in the first place, I would hope right. he would pay attention. Well, okay, I wouldn't. They hope. were also I would a assume. little drunk at that they point. Were. They were. They weren't entirely paying attention to everything that was going on at all times in the cockpit because they were also dealing with just being now in charge of this airplane. Okay. However, it was only very shortly after they started these circles that eventually a warning sounded in the cockpit, alerting the captain and the hijackers to the fact that they had less than 30 minutes of fuel on board. They're like, hey, there's no fuel left. Yeah, the captain at that time pleaded with the hijackers again, who still did not allow them to land. The three hours had now passed. Did we mention they're dumb as a box of rocks? Very dumb. I mean, if you haven't realized it by now. Yep. They're really dumb. Maybe they'll sink like a box of rocks. Right. The, we'll get to that later. Yep. <laughs> The three hours had passed, mostly for all intents and purposes for the passengers uneventfully, who were just anxiously sitting, waiting for anything. 2.41 p.m. local time. All of this is in the same time zone, by the way, which is kind of nice because they went pretty much straight south. Straight down, yep. <laughs> from Ethiopia. The right engine shut down. No. Having run out of fuel. The left engine was still operating, but not far behind. They began descending toward the ocean. The hijacker left the right seat to discuss with the other hijackers 
about the fuel situation, having actually had an engine run out of fuel. It's almost like we told you that would happen. <laughs> Many times up to this point for the last three hours. It's almost like we told you we don't have enough fuel to get to Australia. Yep. While they were no longer in the cockpit, the captain took that time to very quickly make an announcement to the passenger cabin. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot. We have run out of fuel and we are losing one engine this time and we are expecting crash landing and that is all I have to say. We have lost already one engine and I ask all passengers to react to the hijackers. That was his way of saying he wants them to fight back. Which is rare. This doesn't normally happen and it's not really, it's a dangerous call on his behalf because obviously they could threaten his life, plane, whatever. But also, at this point, he's like... The plane might go down anyway. What do we have to lose now? Exactly. That's what he's trying to get across to the passengers. He's like, we're screwed. What do we have to lose? Fight back. That said, none of the passengers got up. None of them fought back. Because he said it a really weird way. He did, because he said react to the hijackers. Because, to be fair, English was not his first language by any means, and he didn't quite know how to express what he was trying to say. Some people understood, but were too nervous to do it. And I kind of don't blame them because you're still in a hijacking situation and you still, like, that's still really nerve It's dangerous. Like, if, it's really dangerous. You if don't. anybody knows the history of 9-11, which hopefully most of our listeners do, but if you don't, there is a plane that went down in Pennsylvania yep. because... United 93. They decided to fight back against the hijackers, which, to good be fair... For, good for them. They probably would have died anyway. Because the plane was headed for somewhere in D.C., similar to American 77, everyone died, right? So whatever, they didn't end up making their final destination. But the point being is it's better to fight back and die anyway than it is to be like, well, we're going to die anyway. Let's just sit here and take it. Right. And that's what the captain was trying to get across, but it didn't work. Well, to be fair, you're probably scared. At this point, though, I wish that everybody was like in the captain's brain, because if they saw how just dumb everything was that was going on in the cockpit, they probably would have been like, oh, this is easy. Oh. I'll just sit on them. <laughs> Whenever we talk about if our house gets burglarized for whatever reason, Nick's like, I won't fight them. I'll just sit on them. I'm I'll like, just fight them, knock them to the floor and sit is, on them. What do I need is- to do? The hijacker quickly returned to the cockpit and hit the microphone out of the captain's hand. As they continued, he didn't do anything further, by the way. That was just, he was like, no. <laughs> well, that's really nice because he could have, you know, killed I mean, I'm sure he was like, don't do that again yeah, or I will you know, kill you. But he was like. Smacked him around. I'm sure he was like, well, don't do he that again. He was also pretty drunk at this point. Yeah, yeah, I have to. You're right. I have to remember that they are drunk. Yes. They're they, drunk. They don't were, do um, that. Guys. Yeah. I just think it's funny. Like, I'm sure he was like, don't do that again or I'll kill you. But it's like, literally, he just told everybody to get up and beat the crap out of you. Like, (laughs) why are you not doing more about this as a hijacker? Not that I'm encouraging that, but it's like, wow, they are dumb. Yep. (laughs) As they continued to descend in order to maintain speed, like, that's the whole reason they're descending. They're one engine down. They need to keep some kind of speed because they cannot maintain 39,000 feet on one engine. Oh, they can't? No. Turns out. <laughs> Sorry. The hijacker began playing with the controls again, this oh time violently. No. Which eventually did cause the autopilot to disconnect. And no! the flight took some quite erratic behaviors all of a sudden, twisting and turning and up and down and making all sorts of crazy maneuvers, as well as having some very large variances in speed over some very quick periods of time. They're really lucky that they didn't just stall. Yeah. Or like overstress the airplane. The captain took back controls relatively quickly and gained stable flight again. 
after fighting with the guy. Probably right? was so looking you, at the guy and going, what the f*** are you doing? Yeah, seriously, thought you wanted to live to get to Australia. Do you want to get to Australia or not? Like, seriously. I know you're drunk, but stop. Right. Finally, the left engine cut out when they were around 30,000 feet. The airplane lost all power, but the ram air turbine, or the RAT, deployed, supplying the absolute minimum needed to the captain to fly. Will you explain what a RAT is? The RAT is a little tiny windmill. It's a little turbine that comes at the bottom of the airplane. Yep, just pops right out of the middle of the belly of the airplane. It's like, imagine what giant turbines do for wind energy is exactly what that does to... It produces... Just enough electricity. A little bit of electricity. Yep, produces just enough electricity to do the bare minimum in the cockpit. Allow him to have a little bit of flight controls, even though it's not quite perfect. Allow him to have some primary displays in front of him so he can see the bare minimum altitude, speed, direction, those kinds of things. But not a whole lot more. It really doesn't do much. Autopilot will not work on this. Their primary displays for all other things, their engine displays, all that, gone. Nothing. There is not much. The PA system does still work on that, though. Okay. Two minutes after the left engine failed, the FDR and the CVR were gone. Hey, because spoilers. Power. Uh, shit, what am I even spoiling? I don't This know. is not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a surprise to anybody. There's no power. I, I know. I don't have a lot to cover, so you're taking away what little I have. Well, that is all I say about it. The captain argued with the hijackers, stating that they were all doomed without fuel. You saying, are all idiots. He's like, literally like, we have no fuel. We have no engines anymore. We are going to end up in the ocean. The ocean. And the leader of the hijackers was like, well, you're not going to continue to descend. Stay where we are. Stay at this altitude. How do you not understand? <laughs> the engines are not working. He, you are out of fuel. There is no way for you to maintain that. He's like, would you like to die now instead? Because don't descend or I'll kill you. And the captain's like, like go ahead. We're dead anyway. <laughs> the captain, yeah, that's pretty much the captain's response. He was like, what are you talking about? You do realize there is nothing to actually produce thrust for us to stay at this altitude, correct? You are aware that that is not an option. Yep. Physics. Yep. Basic physics. We'll get into that later on why they didn't understand basic Listen, physics. Listen, most humans don't understand basic physics. That's true. You're not wrong. <laughs> yep. The airplane was still near the large island of Comoros Islands, so the captain continued to circle the big island, hoping to land at the airport, but they really couldn't. Mm, they wouldn't allow him to make a landing. Why? <clears throat> also, there, but now he was facing another challenge. With the minimal systems that he had, making a landing on a runway was actually exponentially more difficult. Primarily because... You don't got flaps. There's no flaps. It's very difficult to get the gear down. I mean, you can do the manual drop and hope Usually that it Usually you want two people in the cockpit that are competent. Yep. So and if you easier. do that, you also provide more drag, causing the airplane to get even slower. So there's a lot of things kind of working against him from doing a landing on a runway anyways. So we're looking at a ditching situation. Now, if you remember from U.S. Air flying 1549, mm -hmm. that was the first official good, successful ditching. Completely of survivable. Of a jetliner. Completely survived. You yes. will know that this probably doesn't turn out very well. No. That's the only reason why I say, like, not to minimize the tragedy that really was this crash, but also some of this is just, like, 
what in the world? I feel bad for making jokes about it, but at this point, it's like, this is my coping mechanism. Well, and quite frankly, actually, most of the world and the internet and the aviation community still makes fun of these hijackers to this just, day. It's just, how could you be so stupid to think that a an airliner would... that's meant to go a couple of hours can fly for 10 hours to Australia? Suddenly has enough fuel to make it all the way to Australia. And then not... You know, respond to the captain who's not fighting you right. in any way to say, we need to refuel and I'll get you too. He's literally like, I just don't care. I just want to actually put this airplane on the ground and get enough fuel in it to make it there. Like, we just don't have enough fuel. But they are literally so diehard on this not making a landing on land anywhere because they don't want to be, I don't know, imprisoned or anything like that. Which, what do you think is going to happen when you get to Australia? But, point being... They're so adamant about this. At this point, they're still like, we're not landing anywhere unless it's Australia. Still! (laughs) The first officer had been assisting passengers in preparing for an emergency landing because he was well aware of what was going on once the engine shut down. I mean, I'm sure he was aware kind of overall the whole time. Yeah, but but he is not dumb as a bag of rocks. No, he's not dumb as a bag of rocks. Well, hopefully not. He's the first officer. Yes. So he was helping to prepare. As a matter of fact, he had actually gone back to the economy cabin where he was like forced back to. And had seen passengers putting on their life vests and beginning to inflate them. And we'll talk a lot about this going later on. It's another big point of mine that makes this really stupid. This is one of the really big things, actually, that came out of this trash. But, it, yeah. So he went back to help with this whole situation. And he literally went, like, row by row, like, all the way back toward the front. Trying to help people. Like, here's how you brace. Get your life vest ready. Be prepared. We're going to hit, and we're going to hit hard. Yep. The first officer then returned to the flight deck about this point, as they were nearing water, and yelled and forced his way into the cockpit. He just, like, literally pushed the hijackers out of the way, and he was like, I need to help fly this thing, or we're screwed. And they they fought him briefly, but didn't beat him up anymore, and were like, okay, fine. Finally, they listened. What in the world? Like... (laughs) I think at this point, they probably realized, oh, no, they're, like, telling the truth. Yeah. Like, we're descending. Like, there's nothing we can do. Engines are off. We're near water. It's bad. Period. That was just two minutes prior to ditching. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. That that happened so fast. (laughs) Yep. The controls were super heavy, so the captain immediately asked the first officer to assist. Like, he was literally, like, they're trying to turn. Because at one point, actually, here, just two minutes prior to ditching, they were kind of pointed at the beach. Okay. With people on it? With people on it. Oh, no. And at their current trajectory, they probably would have ended up, like, inland, and this is not good. So he wanted to make a turn to fly parallel to the beach just before getting there, because he wanted to end up as close to land as possible in this ditching without hurting anybody on the ground. But also, you know, hoping to help their chances People who exit the Rescue and all of that. You want it to be in as shallowest waters as possible because the people who can get off the aircraft then can make it to land relatively easily. That's the hope. And they can see it and they can make it to it rather than them, you know, needing to be in a life raft for multiple hours or whatever. So it took both of them to make this turn. Because, Because there's no engines. The turns are harder. Yep. They're having to put a lot more force to actually work against, you know, the air flow. They were unable to lower the flaps, like we said. So they were now flying 150 feet above the ground at 200 knots while approaching the shallow waters near a busy beach. 3.20 p.m. local time. As seen in a dramatic video, 
which we will, we will have on the internet. This is the very famous video of this crash. If you ever look up just plane crash videos, I guarantee this one's in there somewhere. For some reason, it is always, always, always in every video, like compilation of aircraft accidents. I crashes, mean, it's whatever. dramatic. It is. It's very dramatic, and it is one of the most dramatic ever caught on video because it's just crazy that this whole thing was captured. As seen on this dramatic video detailing the whole crash sequence, you can see the whole thing happen. The airplane was in a left-wing low attitude as they were still trying to turn. As the left-wing tip dragged along the water surface before the left engine finally hit the water, turning and flipping the airplane, quickly slowing it down, breaking the whole fuselage and wings into several large pieces. So it was quite the dramatic impact. They came to a stop very abruptly. The impact was super heavy, and the fuselage breaking were both contributing factors to the instantaneous death of some of the passengers on impact, including the hijackers, who were not strapped into any seats. So, unfortunately, yes. As well as a famous journalist, cameraman, actually, who was trying to advocate for helping people and fighting the hijackers, but was not seated upon impact. He was up and out of his seat. This cameraman, actually, they cover it in Mayday, but he was super famous. He was a fearless cameraman who went into every possible war zone in Africa and just put himself, like, right in the middle of it. He lost an arm to a bomb. Like, this guy was in everything. And he was truly fearless. And so, like, this was just a happenstance. He was on this flight, kind of really ironic and crazy and horrible, but that's how he passed away. He wasn't strapped in a seat when they impacted the water. And it was a heavy impact. The flight crew survived because they were strapped in. And the nose actually didn't strike actually till almost the end because they were somewhat nosed up as they hit. It hit the engines. The nose went in, but it separated and managed to actually kind of float itself briefly. So the flight crew tried to evacuate basically as quickly as possible, which meant that they had to fight with their harnesses and everything. And at one point, the captain even said, like, he was going to turn to the first officer to, like, tell him, like, get out. Mm-hmm. And he was already gone. Like, (laughs) it happened fast. Like, the first officer was like, nope, I'm out. Bye. (laughs) He was gone. And so the captain was like, all right, me too. (laughs) Gone. They were out. Some passengers quickly found ways out of the wreckage, because there were some survivors, but many were unable to. It was found after the accident that many passengers had inflated their life vests before exiting the airplane and were therefore trapped in the sinking wreckage and eventually drowned. So... A lot of, and if you've watched the Mayday episode, which I've seen, which is part of the reason I know this accident, mm-hmm. was they were freaking out. And so before they even got to the water, people yep. were inflating their life vests thinking, oh, this is going to help me. But the problem with doing that before you get out of the wreckage is when you hit the water, you float to the top of the fuselage. Right. And if the fuselage sinks, you yep. can't get out. The other really good point that they made in the episode is that because of that buoyancy trying to pull you up, which those those vests are pretty, they don't look like much, but the amount of weight that those things can actually carry, those little vests, is pretty nuts. And so the other good point that they made is that a lot of people that were still in their seat with their seatbelts on and had them inflated as the water quickly rose, they actually got pulled up so hard they couldn't undo their seatbelts because it was too tight for them to unlatch. Yeah. And so some of them drowned that way. They were literally found in their seats like they couldn't get out. I mean, this is this but is a lot the, of them also ended up like at the top of the fuselage and couldn't swim down. So if you've been in an airplane in the last probably 20 years, it would be my guess, is they tell you that 
when you leave the wreckage or when you leave the aircraft to inflate your vest. And right. they do that for every single time they show you how to put on your vest and how to inflate it. Wait until you exit the aircraft. Right. And that's why. Because if you think about it, if it's already inflated by the time you hit the water, you're going to be floating in the fuselage. Right. And the if doors you can get out of your seat. Right. And you have to remember the doors are at floor level Whoa. and there is like above that in the fuselage a lot of the time so you could end up above the door and you can't get down to get out so unless you take off your life vest this is the one really big thing from this particular crash that was taken away as a thing that needed to change in the industry is like we really need to make people aware like don't inflate it before you leave the airplane yes because that was just key deadly thing honestly they didn't even give me a number of exactly how many people were estimated to have drowned because of this, but it was quite a chunk. That's all we know. If you've watched the Air Disasters video, there is a portion where you see people inflate their vests. Yeah. And then they can't get out. And so I don't know if it was part of the safety information at this point in time, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe they didn't realize it. Or maybe it was. they thought it was common knowledge and it wasn't common knowledge. Right. Well, the first officer had actually noticed people inflating them when he was in the economy still, when he was back in the economy class. And so he went around to them and helped them like deflate them and then explained to them like, when we hit the water, this is how you're going to reinflate once you're outside the airplane. He would explain this to people. Like he went row by row and was like, for those that had them inflated, he was like, no, 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 no. It's because I think the ideology behind it was if this is inflated, if we impact hard, this is extra cushion. And it will help me survive because it's going to help me float. But in all reality, reality, it's going to make you drown. It is not. Because as we know, because we've covered U.S. Air Flight 1549 and all that. Mm -hmm. It was several, almost 10 years after this, that there was a successful ditching of a jet airliner. Yeah. So there was no reason for them to think that this would be successful in ditching. I don't think a lot of passengers knew what ditching would look like. And so... So that's kind of the whole other thing about this, though, is this is still actually seen as a miracle by the flight crew because this was the first time that a wide body had been ditched in the ocean and people survived, which was basically thought to maybe be impossible. <laughs> Up until this point, like they really never like they, of course, they've run simulations and things and they were like, theoretically, it can be done, but we can't prove it because it's never actually had to be done. And of course, you'd never want it to be. And in this case, it did. And the crazy thing is that people did survive, which proved that there were some safety measures in place that were working and that this really was possible. So this was the first time that it crossed people's minds. Like, no, you can actually survive a ditching in a big airplane. Like you really can. Should you end up in the ocean? It's really maybe not the end of the world. And then 1549 was the time we can prove that you could ditch an airplane and everybody would survive. Right. So that's kind of that. That's where this legacy fit. Most of the wreckage did not sink very far because the waters were quite shallow at the crash site. As a matter of fact, like a lot of the wreckage was still above the water. <laughs> there was a reef. Yep, there was a reef there. So like the tail was still out of the water. Engines had floated just a little bit away from the wreckage and were like just sitting mostly out of the water. That's also one of the factors that caused it to break up so catastrophically was the reef. The reef, yep. Okay. Because they impacted the reef. Yeah. Many boats in the area mobilized immediately to help including some that were narrowly missed by the airplane just before impact, as a matter of fact. Some people did manage to actually just get themselves to shore, basically. Some of the survivors actually managed to find their ways to, like, some rocks nearby. and Some dude, he got out, he was swimming, 
past debris. And he's like, that's a passport. And he grabbed it. It was the captain. It was the captain. Oh, it was the captain. It was his passport. The captain found his passport floating in the wreckage. <laughs> that's really unlikely. It had come out of his bag and he was like, oh, oh yeah, that. that. <laughs> Slipped it in his pocket. Kept swimming. Yep. Sorry. At that point when watching the episode, I was only listening. So I, I thought know, it was just some guy. No, it was, no, the, it was captain. the captain. In all. Six crew and 119 passengers perished in the crash, which is still the vast majority, as well as, you know, drowned from the post-crash sinking. Six crew and 38 passengers were seriously injured. Two passengers were minorly injured, and four were not injured at all. Wow. They were all seated toward the front. Yep. Which is kind of the crazy thing about that. You know, most of the time, the theory, of course, goes in aviation. Well, we're going forward really fast, so the forward is probably going to be death zone because it's going to be the impact but the reality is is not not always the case there is no seat in an airplane that is safer than any other correct because because there are so many different variations in the way that airplanes crash if you haven't figured that out by now from listening to a hundred and however many episodes episodes we have have, that actually it could literally be any part of the airplane that hits first so there you go that's the whole thing i've got i know that was really long but that was kind of the point we're going to take our break here yep And then we'll come back and Christy will have some stuff and I'll have some stuff. Yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're back. This investigation was performed by the... And... No, not the NTSB. <laughs> uh, wait, it was wait. not the NTSB this No, time. I can't think. I was so confident. <laughs> this, was actually kind of, this is actually kind of complicated. It was technically performed by the Ethiopian Civil Aviation Authority Flight Safety Department. Primarily because they were the closest thing involved that could actually carry out a full investigation. You remember that whole thing we talked about a couple episodes ago, which might have been last episode, I don't remember, about international waters? Yes. Yeah, that this qualifies, and I think. And the whole thing, too, is like, Comoros, sorry, but is a nowhere island. Yep. There's not much. It's a vacation destination for some people, but it's a very unknown one. It's not a big place. There's one airport, and it is not busy. So they, by far and away, do not have much in the world of aviation in Comoros. It is not something that they have to regularly investigate in any way, shape, or form. So that is why they would not have an investigative bureau. They wouldn't even know how to do such a thing. So Ethiopia. So Ethiopia. And they really didn't have a whole lot to say, given the uh, circumstances. Both black boxes were recovered and were transported to the AAIB in the UK in sealed water-filled containers to prevent drying out and oxidation. The CBR was undamaged and in good condition, but it ceased recording when the left engine failed. What do you know? Makes sense. The FDR had some impact damage, but and the cover had to be cut away. Like, they couldn't just, you know, like, unscrew and plop the thing off. No, they had to, like, take hand saws and crap. Yep. Power tools. But the tape was in good condition, and we're coming back to that later. So the main other thing that investigators had was the video, and we're now going to pause here so Paige can watch that. Okay, so remind me what... I know you were just saying part of the fuselage was sticking up. When it finished rolling, did it come back upright? Some of it ended up upright, because if you look at the very end of the video, the wing is straight up, Uh huh. and it hadn't snapped yet. 
and actually it kind of it came back down part of it. So part of the fuselage came back down. The tail actually, even though it was up on its side, it had broken, but eventually had fallen back to straight. And because it was just so close to land, and they managed to get a lot of it upright pretty quickly, but some of it was inverted, I think, but most of it was upright by the time it actually came to rest. But it was quite the ride. You can see how that impact did a lot of damage, especially if you weren't strapped in. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was a brutal impact. So yeah, go watch that on YouTube. The, or on the website. It'll be on the website. Uh, that too. Yes. The link to YouTube. That. <laughs> the first part of the analysis was spent describing what went well, or what was correct. The aircraft was properly certificated, mm-hmm. equipped, maintained, and operated. The weight and balance was within limits. Both pilots were trained and qualified. There was no evidence of any malfunctions or failures of the structures or systems in a causal manner. Thank you. The flight crew did nothing wrong. Thank you. It was questioned whether or not the cabin crew could have done more to increase the survivability of the ditching. Pre-takeoff briefings were performed using an audiovisual demonstration and safety information cards, much as they are today. Yep. That the actual act of doing it hasn't changed, other than if there's an in-flight entertainment system, that is generally where that is now done. But also, I mean, things change within those presentations. Yes, the the act of doing it hasn't changed. The content has. Correct. Given the circumstances of the hijacking, no pre-emergency briefing was carried out, other than, quote, ladies and gentlemen, please sit down and fasten your seatbelts. Don't panic. Please fasten your seatbelts, end quote. And the nature of the crash did not allow the cabin crew to perform their emergency duties. Right. They were hijacked. Yep. There's only so much you can do. Half of the crew did not survive either. So, of which, I mean, neither of the flight crew died, obviously. So, because six out of the crew perished, six were still alive, but two of those were flight crew, leaving only four cabin crew alive at the end of this. They were not able to give adequate information to the passengers since they themselves didn't have it. They were also not allowed by the hijackers to use the PA system. And that was the whole analysis, except for one thing that the investigation really harped on and wouldn't let go of. There were, quote-unquote, severe problems with the Flight Data Acquisition Unit, or FDAU. This makes it difficult to convert the information recorded by the FDR to usable information. This makes it difficult to convert the information recorded by the FDR to usable information. They got help from Boeing and Teledyne, the FDAU manufacturer, and no one was able to make any sense of the data. It wasn't until they used the 757 data frame that the data seemed to make more sense. Weird. Turns out... The FDAU could be fit to either a 767 or a 757. True, which they had both of in their fleet. And the programming within looks at the engine identifier code to set the correct frame layout. So it says, what kind of engines do you have? That's the kind of plane I'm going to be. If it doesn't recognize the engine, it defaults to a 757. Makes sense. Which is exactly what happened here. This is a much larger problem because if a data set for the 767 isn't in the 757 coding, it doesn't get recorded. Oh, no. Bummer. Good news is most of the primary stuff fits. So a lot of the primary flight data was recorded. There were some that weren't. It didn't go into detail which ones weren't, or I didn't care to read it. One of the two. Conclusions! Yeah, that was the entire analysis, folks. Yep. I didn't count how many conclusions there are, and I don't enumerate them. I summarize. That's okay. 
The aircraft was fine. The crew was good. The loading and CG were within limits. Great. Great. <laughs> Thank you. It was found that despite the relatively low percentage of survivors, there was sufficient survival equipment installed, and the cabin crew was diligent and ensured that all life vests were donned, despite the cabin crew not being trained in accordance with the CAA. Yeah, that's a bummer. One of the potential survivability factors was that it took longer to save passengers as rescuers were concerned about explosives. I mean, that is fair. There is a threat. I guess I shouldn't get too far into this only because I'm sure you cover it. I one do. Of, one of the hijackers claimed that his glove was the bomb. Dude, we'll get into it. It's even uh, stupider I'll, than that. I'll let okay. you get there. Okay, let me keep going. Because the CVR and FDR stopped recording, investigators were unable to discern whether or not the ditching was performed properly, as they had no vertical speed information. But also, what is a proper ditching, since it wasn't in the manual how to properly ditch? The crew wasn't trained to ditch either, since it wasn't in the manual. So how can you tell if they properly ditched? Right. For that matter, they also weren't trained on anti-hijacking. Did we talk about this poor captain? Let's talk about it now. This was the third hijacking this captain had been a part of. No! All with the same airline, on three different airplane types. A 727, a 737, and now a 767. So he had this expectation. This is a big part of why he went along with all of this, and he was completely nonchalant about the whole thing. It's one of those, like, for sake, again? Okay, fine. In the previous two, he had managed to land the airplane, and everybody got off. And everybody was fine. Nobody was hurt. Which is why I made the general announcement at the beginning. This isn't new. Right. And they were told to just do what the hijackers told them to. Which is what he had always done in the past. It was company policy, and unfortunately it was very common at the time. A big part of that was the climate in Ethiopia at the time. Things have changed a lot. Ethiopia at the time was going through a massive famine. So that was a big driver for hijackings. People wanted to get out. But usually they only wanted to go to, like, Nigeria or someplace close by. They really didn't care. They were just trying to get out of Ethiopia any way they could. They weren't trying to go to Australia, usually. (laughs) So that's why this one was a little bit different. So, cause. cause. I'm already here. Yep. The investigation committee determines that the cause of this accident was unlawful interference by the hijackers, which resulted in loss of engines thrust due to fuel exhaustion. Was there ever any question of that? Absolutely not. Nope. They knew what happened before it happened. Recommendations. There are four. I'm summing these up because I think they're a bit drab. Dear Ethiopian Airlines, please make sure the correct data acquisition unit is installed on your 767s, and please have Boeing check that all Pratt & Whitney engined 767s are being registered to the FDAU properly. Dear airplane manufacturers in general, please make a backup power supply for the black boxes. This has been a constant in all of our episodes, and this is not new. And a lot of them these days, a lot of the newer ones do have their own power supply, but it's not necessarily still going to do everything they want it to because it won't draw data from all the sensors on that battery. Dear Ethiopian Airlines, again, please train your crews for emergency duties as stated by the CAA, your regulation authority. Dear everyone, please keep your fire axe somewhere where hijackers can't get it. (laughs) Yeah. Crash axe is usually in a confidential location only known to flight crew. A lot of these, like, they didn't explicitly say who they were talking to, but that one, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they just meant that for everyone. Yep. Dear everyone. It's also contained within the cockpit, which is usually now a locked location, which is a big thing that has changed since 9-11. You can't contribute it to this 
crash because it really changed after 9-11. But between the time of this crash and 9-11, security officials around the world were screaming from the rooftop as well as aviation authorities saying, we need to change the cockpit door and we need to change a lot of other things because hijackings are getting insane. Nuts. Happening way too often. So that was the entire report. And to you, Miranda. Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about the hijackers, shall we? Yes. Or what I'm, little we know. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to preface this with, there was, like, little to almost no information about the hijackings. I was kind of surprised, uh, and we'll get to that in a second, because Nick didn't cover this in his part. Mm-hmm. So, who they were, okay? There were three men that stormed the cockpit of Ethiopian 961. They used the crash axe and a fire extinguisher and a device they said was a bomb yes. to get into the cockpit. Now, I'm going to say their names. I apologize in advance. Ala Mayhu, Bekele Belanaya, Matthias Solomon Belay, and Sultan Ali Hussein. Hussein? You might, you might have noticed that there's only three names there. Remember I said there were 11, they claimed? Yeah, they were lying. They were lying. Two of them were unemployed high school graduates. One of them was a nurse. Emphasis on the does not understand basic physics. Yeah, that's why I said that. Yep. They beat the first officer and forced him out of the cockpit. Yep. And then they threatened to blow up the plane if the captain did not fly them to Australia, which, by the way, was physically impossible. Yep. Though they clearly did not do their homework since planes are not filled all the way every time they fly. Yep. Unlike, like, if you fill your car up, you usually fill it up all the way. Right. right? You usually don't have to account for getting off the ground. Right. So... <laughs> Airplanes don't do that. They fill to their destination so that they can take on the passengers on the plane that they can. I didn't talk too much about this because I didn't want to give it away too early on, but they only had enough fuel for two stops along the route. Not all the way, not all five cities. Yeah. They only had two stops worth because they were carrying enough cargo and a majority of an airplane of people, and they were planning to pick up more along the way. So they did not want... It's going to be more efficient if they carried only the minimum fuel needed to get to a location with a quick refueling station. Yeah, so they get enough fuel to get to their destination, maybe a little more in case of diversion, because you always have to kind of have that little safety thing in there. Yes, But other always... than that, they don't usually fuel to full capacity unless they're flying to that full capacity. Once they figured out that there was no way for the plane to make it to their desired destination, these are the hijackers, they made the captain fly on anyway, not caring if they crashed or not. So there's a portion on the Wikipedia page where there's a quote from the captain. I don't know how accurate it is. Because it's Wikipedia. Right. But it had said something to the effect of they didn't care if we crashed or if we died. They wanted to die with us. So, and he had said that there was talk that that's what they wanted anyway, was to die with everyone else. Now, there's no other source that says that other than the Wikipedia page. So take it with a grain of salt. Yep. But it's on there. When the captain tried to ditch the plane, one of the hijackers died. And there were two others that were fished out of the Indian Ocean and charged. Oh. So not all three of them died. Okay. Only one of them did. Right. I guess I should have clarified the lead hijacker. Yeah. Because he was right inside the cockpit, basically impacted and passed. Yeah. The other two, I don't know where they were, but they also, I was 
from what I understand, they were not seated. And mind you, the report was also translated, so everything that was written in English in there was not very good. So if I gave any kind of crap information, it's I'm giving you exactly what was in the report. Yeah, there is very little known about them or why they hijacked the plane to begin with. I literally took like an hour this afternoon to try to figure it out. No one has any answers on why they decided to hijack the plane. It might have been because of the famine going on in Ethiopia. They didn't want to be in Ethiopia anymore. That's highly probable. But there was no actual intent said to anyone as far as I can find. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means I literally searched for like half an hour and couldn't find it. So It was also found that the quote-unquote bomb they had on board was actually just a covered liquor bottle. (laughs) come on it wasn't even a bomb it was literally just a a bottle covered in stuff to make it look like a bomb and that's all i have it's just nuts i just feel like the whole thing i mean yeah don't get me wrong they were obviously desperate but what the heck so the biggest reason that this did not win a darwin award is because other Other people people lost their lives in order to qualify for a Darwin Award, you have to have done something. It. Right, you have to have done something stupid and died and not affect anybody else. So, this does not qualify for that simple reason. However, definitely ninety percent of the way there. Yeah. yeah, and I, when I tell you that I searched everywhere to try to figure out if they were part of a terrorist organization, if they were part of some anything, and they were not. Nothing. The There's May- nothing. The Mayday episode even says that no terrorist organization claimed them. They didn't want anything to do with them, probably because they were really dumb. Because they were dumb as a box of rocks. They carried that out so poorly. There was no thought put into this whatsoever. It was let's hijack a plane and go to Australia. That's basically thing- what I can assume. The only thing that they had on their side was like they knew that it was a 767 they wanted to be on because it had the range to get to Australia what they Okay, but maybe pick one that was actually headed somewhere far away. Uh, yeah, exactly. But they didn't even do that amount of research. The thing that shocks me is they did no research other than the fact that they knew that the 767 EVR could fly for 11 hours straight. Right. And I just don't it just they were already going to be outside of Ethiopia, and that's what most people hijacking an airplane wanted. They wanted yeah. to get just out of Ethiopia to some place where they figured, even if I'm in prison, it's probably a better situation than what they were living in, whatever the case. And yet, apparently, any of those other four or five cities wasn't enough. I will say that, considering this, and considering what happened just a few years after this, mm-hmm. A lot of things have changed, right? Very much so. You cannot even get into the cockpit door with the crash axe. We covered that with German wings. Right. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it. Careful, it's a hard listen. It's a very hard listen. There's a trigger warning on it. If you don't want to listen to it, I understand. But basically, the premise is, is they try to get into the cockpit with an axe. It didn't work. Right. There's... I don't know at this point if, depending on what the cockpit door was made out of that they could break into it but that can't happen anymore yeah no in this case they just literally opened the door also passengers now are not as complacent as they were after 9-11 all over the world people became less complacent with people hijacking planes and security's beefed and i mean even in third world countries this just doesn't happen 
as often anymore because the rules are so strict around the world just to operate an aircraft that it becomes very difficult. And in any case, generally, if an aircraft hijacking does happen, it happens to a very small airplane, generally without a cockpit door. This is a very rare occurrence these days. Not unheard of. Actually, the only way anymore that hijackings, quote unquote, occur in large commercial aviation part 121 with jet aircraft is government hijackings and this belarus belarus i was gonna say belarus is a very touchy subject but a very ugly one for example when somebody's on board that they want to imprison and the airplane is just flying by and they intercept and force that airplane to land so they can take that person off that is not okay no and it's that, kind of against, upon? It's, it's, that is a sign of extreme hostile government activities. And it's not, not very to get too political, often but often that it happens, but it did happen with Belarus around a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah, that was ugly. And in most cases, even in countries with strict governments and dictators. They still generally tend to follow the rules because there's a lot of consequences if you don't. And that's why the Belarus thing was such a shock to the world because... It's one of those, did you really just do that? Right. Did you just do that? Because even, even like China, Russia, even North Korea will follow the rules where if an aircraft enters its airspace, whether they want it or not... Whether they want somebody on board, they will still follow the rules and escort that airplane out of the airspace. As we talked about with with Korean Air Air 007. Which was the rare instance where they actually just shot down an airliner by mistake, supposedly. Quote unquote mistake. There's a lot going on there. But in most cases, they will still just rather fly the airplane out of the airspace. Let it be a non-incident after that because it's way too big of an issue if they make it bigger than that. All this to say is hijackings don't really happen anymore. Especially in first world countries. Because it is an unbelievably difficult thing to do. And even though there's plenty of claims out there that it's still very much a doable thing, it's actually just logistically so difficult to plan and execute that even major organizations on Earth just don't want to do it. Well, in part of it too... Because the unfortunate thing to say here is because unfortunately there are easier targets. There are. But the other thing is, too, is after 9-11 happens, people stop being so... Complacent. Okay, yeah, we'll let them do whatever they want. I talked about the shoe bomber Mm -hmm. on one of my Miranda episodes, and we've talked about this before on post episodes, but there was a person who was flying from London to Detroit with a bomb in his underwear. Yep. He detonated the bomb. It didn't work. Nope. Okay, but ultimately what ended up happening was when they found out, when passengers found out what happened, there was literally a Marine on board that sat on him until they landed. Yep. Like, You're, I'm just going to sit on him. We come back to this. Yeah, <laughs> he literally on. sat on the guy till they landed. So, and he, I mean, he would have fought him if need be, but part of it is passengers are not willing to just sit by and be okay with hijackings anymore. No. They realize that ultimately this could end up being an issue where we die. Well, and the big part of that is that 9-11, and it's not, although it was not the first time that a hijacking or something really horrific had happened. 9-11 was such a shift in the mental case because... No one realized that the people hijacking the plane would be willing to die. Because the hijackings were such a deadly thing where it went from being 
a tool to escape, a tool to get a means to an end. It was turned into a weapon. So what I would suggest you would do if you want more information on that, we have several documentaries. There's one on Netflix that's really good. I don't know if you want to look up the documentary that we watch almost every year. On the day, I don't remember what it's, it's called. called. It's just called 9-11-9-1. And it is... That one, I think, is the most impactful of all of, there is of, all of them. absolutely me. no beating that documentary. And I don't even think that there's an argument against that because the reality is... It wasn't meant to be that documentary, and it turned into it. And it was the most... I mean, if they were there. I they, mean... Yes, they every, were in the building. Every part of it gives you an idea of everything that happened and it is horrific and i would like for us to talk about because you guys have actually seen come from far away now because we saw it on friday so i'd like to talk about that in the post episode but i think i would just come from away it's come from away away, sorry my point is is there's a lot of information out there for you to if you would like to research and know more about 9-11 especially if you were not alive yet or if you don't remember it because don't tell me because i'll feel old i'll talk about it in the post episode anyway there's many, many resources for you to view, for you to understand why this changed. Because the captains and the flight crews on this airplane did what they were supposed to, and ultimately it ended in disaster for all of them Right on those airplanes. And so it switched the idea of, oh, they'll hijack, we'll take them where they need to go, and then everyone will be safe, into, oh no, this is actually, like, right. it's, a problem. It's really a, a dangerous And thing. we need to, like, stop that from happening. And In, passengers started to be like, we need to stop that from even happening. Even with this Ethiopian crash, the mentality started to change. I mean, it had already kind of started to change before this crash, but this crash in particular was so impactful because it was seen around the world. And because this was so impactful, because it was so both a miracle and a tragedy all at the same time in the craziness that is hijacking a plane and the whole concept of it, it really started to change the mentality for people that we need to start adding some security measures to this. Like, it's kind of just an easy target yeah, for, to be quite frank, the dumbest of people to take. If you don't... And the whole point no. the whole point of the TSA and security around the world and the way that they've changed cockpit doors and all of these things, all of the security measures in place, isn't necessarily to just literally physically stop the attack. It's to just put so many difficult things in the way to get past that it's just too hard of a target. Yeah. They would rather just be like almost anything else. Just stop it with the airplanes. And so... Even if it's just to get out of a country or something like like most of these hijackings before this, this was still an instance of, with the Ethiopian, like, okay, no, this is actually pretty deadly serious. Yes. Contrary to all the laughing we did, it was deadly serious. I I know that we make jokes sometimes on episodes, and people do complain about that, by the way, but I think part of it to take away from it is we're joking because it wouldn't happen now. And if it did happen... It wouldn't happen, first of all, where we live. But second of all, more airplanes that are getting, quote unquote, bought and rented across the world. At least, yeah. Have the measures in place that this doesn't happen anymore. You can't break into a cockpit anymore. Right. You just can't. If it's a really old airplane, maybe. If it's an airplane without a cockpit door, maybe. But you'd have to be really, I mean, determined. Yeah. And at that point... 
the flight crew probably already know what's going on and the passengers know what's going on. And like I said before, because of 9-11, passengers aren't just willing to just sit there and not do anything anymore. They will fight back. And you better hope that you can overpower passengers because if there's 100 passengers and three of you, you're not going to last. There's, all that said, there's more good than bad in the world. Right. Still wholeheartedly believe that. Far more good than bad in the world. Anyway, on that somber, somber note, we're going to continue. switch from where we started. We'll continue overall conversation about hijackings and stuff in the post episode. But again, check out the merch. Check out our Patreon page. Paige is a patron, even though they are also our editor and can hear yes. most of the content that we put out. Um, I mean... Did you use your discount code? I did. Okay, thank oh, God. Thank God. <laughs> and, yes. by the way, please be... I am behind on discount codes sometimes, depending on when you join. Yeah. Because I don't always remember that I need to put that in the system. So if your discount code doesn't work and you're a patron and it's supposed to work, please contact us. We can fix that. Because I can fix that and put you in the system because sometimes I'm uh, a little busy and I don't remember. So just make sure if you try to use a discount code on merch or if you think that you're not getting something like that you should like merch wise, just let us know because sometimes we don't know. Right. We don't get that info. Anyway, sign up for the newsletter. I put a lot of hard work in that. and I, There's trivia questions. There's trivia questions, which someone already answered. We should probably do something for the people who answer them all correctly, but we'll figure that out eventually, I guess. Eventually. Congrats to Kevin, who got them all right. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> the only one who answered them. Thank you. you. Did good such job. such a good job. Also, happy spooky season. Yep. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.